What do you believe? What do you believe? Welcome to the Kent Lap Podcast. Do not try this at home. Hello, friends. I am Kent Lap, and welcome to this episode of the KLP, where it is our goal to spark change, bring hope, and help you navigate the tricky bits in life. Today, I'm excited to give you my conversation with Philip Hardin. Philip is the co-founder, chairman of the board, and CFO of U-Science. What is U-Science, you ask? Well, U-Science is the science of you. <laughs> How your mind is wired, what makes you tick, the skills and knowledge that set you apart, and they operate on the premise that you have the talent and there's a path that's right for you, and they can help you find that. It's basically a web-based, easily accessible well, it's really like a set of web-based, easily accessible brain games that can help you discover your aptitudes, uh, which basically is your natural ability to do something, and skills, and what colleges and careers might be a good fit for you. It's pretty dang cool, and you can take their assessment online right now for only $29 at www.uscience.com, which I did. I did... I started taking the assessment, I think the day of the podcast, got about a quarter of the way through it, had the podcast, finished it up that night, and it's pretty sweet. It's, I mean, I've done DISC, I've done Strength Finders, I've done Culture Index, and this one, this one's close to the top of the list. And so you might not be figuring out where to go to college or figuring out what career track is best for you. But if you want to know yourself just a little bit better, then I suggest it. It's pretty fun. Uscience.com. But first, if you're not already subscribed to our weekly email newsletter, you should be. Go to kentlap.com now and simply enter your email. Every week we include a principle, practice, and pleasure that we live by, find helpful, enjoyable, or otherwise beneficial. And we share that in our weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. It's a ton of fun for me to write these every week. I could totally geek out on this stuff. And just as a taste test, this week's principle was when the facts are clear, the decision presents itself. And then I write just a couple of supporting sentences on why and how this works. Um, this week's pleasure was a little bit outside the box. So if you want in on that, you need to just uh, subscribe immediately at kentlap.com, enter your email, and voila. Also, if you didn't already know, we're on YouTube and all the social channels, so please connect with us there as well if you haven't already, particularly on YouTube. Just search Can't Let Podcast on YouTube and hit that subscribe button, please. And now, I give you my conversation with Philip Harden. Please enjoy. I've been looking forward to this one for some time, honestly. Excellent. Yeah, so thanks for being here. I'm very excited. Um, why don't we start with you? Well, it's Philip Harden. So welcome to the podcast. Emailed you last. Well, I think we've been having some emails for about a year. I've, I stumbled upon you science last year, extremely fascinated by it. And now I finally have you on here. I can't wait to hear more, but let's start with, um, can you tell people, um, well, just tell them who you are, what you're doing now. And then if you don't mind, give us a brief kind of how you got here. I mean, I know there's a lot in there. We could spend, you know, two hours just on that. But if you can just run us through um, who you are, what you're doing now, and then how you got here. Sure, Some of the high first, points of your career. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. I'm Philip Harden, and currently I'm the chairman of U-Science and one of the co-founders of U-Science. And you, as far as how to get here, you probably started, I was one of those kids that 
when I went to college, I went to Georgia Public Schools, and you know, because I was good in math and science, they were like, hey, you know, would you like to be a doctor or engineer? And went in and said, oh, I'll be a doctor. Well, found out that even though chemistry and all that came pretty naturally, um, I was sort of fortunate. I tripped over being in business and made the switch and really figured out that and I was fortunate. It was cheap back then, mm-hmm. you know, because it, going to college was very different back in the 80s. You could graduate with any degree, and you put yourself in a rare group just having a degree. Well, that's not the case anymore. College is 10 times more expensive, and just having a degree doesn't qualify you. Employers now want skills. So it's very different environment for you know, people pursuing college right now because they really need to know why they're going, what they want out of it, and try to align those skills with the market. So it's a very different situation. It was easy. That's one of those things that was much easier 30, 40 years ago than it is today. Mm. Hmm. And on that note, and I want to talk about college, by the way, but I think I want to do that on the back end of the youth science discussion because I really want to just dig in deep there. But on the college note, so it's easier, it's easier now, it's less rare to get into college and get a degree. But on the flip side, it's also some, it depends what circles you're in, but it's also, it's also sort of like, it's become cool to kind of frown on college a little bit in some circles, right? I mean, you see these kind of these, these you know, tech startup people that drop out of college and they just do their thing. How do you see this shaping kind of the current environment with college? Like, is there, that's just more like a one-off thing and that's not affecting the general consensus or where do you see the general consensus of college now? Well, I think now there are many more pathways to success. People are starting to see, it became in vogue to going, everybody needs a four-year degree. Well, unfortunately, if only about, 58% of the people pursuing a four-year degree actually graduate. So the graduation rates are actually quite low. 58% of people pursuing a four-year degree graduate? Yes, within six years. And if it's a two-year degree, the graduation rates are even lower. Really? Yes. And so the outcomes are poor. And so what we find is just what you said, you know, look, whether somebody wants to pursue a skilled trades, an apprenticeship to become an electrician, a two-year degree, a technical certificate, a four-year degree, they want to get a PhD or an MD, it's really up to the person. All of them can work. They just need to make those decisions smartly. Okay. So what we're seeing now is, and there's lots of alternative certificates. If you want to become a computer programmer, there's great software schools that you can just go and do that. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily need a four-year degree to do it. So what's been interesting about education is the number of program alternatives has exploded. But you have to have people be in a position to be an informed buyer so that they can smartly make a decision. But mm-hmm. all of those paths will work. It, back then, it was sort of deemed one path. During the 90s and two, you know, early 2000s, everybody thought you had to just get a four-year degree. Not true. Okay, okay. And, and let's, yeah, we don't need to save the college discussion for after the youth science discussion after, because we're in it now. But this is, I was curious about this. So 
I'm sure you're aware of the um, Operation Varsity Blues that kind of broke in 2019 with the um, college admissions scandal. Sure. And there is a documentary now on Netflix that I watched the other week. I think it's just called Varsity Blue, Operation Varsity Blues, the College Admissions Scandal. And it's about um, Rick Singer, who was helping students and their and by extension their parents get into these highly sought after schools harvard and yale and so forth and the way he put it which was kind of in his sales pitch to these people to pay him money to get him in it was so concise it made so much sense there's there's basically two ways to get into these schools and he presented a third way and the three ways are the front door and you know that's um, that's the traditional or the valid or legit or you know you get in because you're really good or your grades are really great or for whatever reason you get accepted into the college. The back door is the parents donate millions of dollars to the school, and these numbers were blowing my mind. He he was saying you can donate a million or two into the school, sometimes more than that, several million, and that still doesn't guarantee that your child gets into that school. They may just take your money and there's your donation and your child still doesn't get in. And some of these schools, you have to be donating like upwards of like five, six million dollars. And and then you're getting a larger chance that your child's going to get in. But he presented this third way, which is the side door, which if you pay Rick, you know, 500,000, now you're guaranteed because the front door is definitely not a guarantee. The back door, even at a few million bucks is even not a guarantee, but half a million gets you guaranteed. Those numbers are blow in my mind. Like to think that it might be worthwhile for a parent or parents, because there was lots of them doing it, to pay several million dollars to get your child into a school. But but is it what are your thoughts on that? It does it depend if you're in the right circles and you just have this desperate need to stay in this kind of level of society or stay in this circle, it's worth paying the few million bucks because you have plenty of it? Like what are your thoughts on that? I'm the guy on the opposite end of that discussion. I actually think the whole lottery view of education and particularly post-secondary education is just wrong. Sure, somebody with a Stanford, Harvard, Princeton degree, some of those are worth it. That's fine. But let's save that discussion for the 0.1% of the kids that are going to go to those schools. One in a thousand. Okay, that's off to the side. And whether it's whether a parent believes that it's worth a million dollars or willing to go to jail for it, or you just happen to have a rock and smart kid that just that's their path. Awesome. All of those are the exception, not the rule. Mm. You know, what's interesting for if you just look at America overall, then we've got, you know, we're going to have millions of jobs. There's just an article coming out that there's going to be a 2.1 million job shortage in advanced manufacturing by 2020, by 2030. They're not going to find enough people with skills in robotics, CAD-GAM, you know, advanced manufacturing techniques to actually fill those jobs. Mm-hmm. And these jobs are going to pay you know, whether they start at 15 like an Amazon in a warehouse, they're going to rapidly move up, okay? So there's a lot of really good 
jobs in America that don't require necessarily, some require a four-year degree, some require a two-year degree, some require, great, go be a welder, you're guaranteed a six-figure income if you can weld right now. Okay? So a lot of these don't require, they don't require Princeton and Harvard and all that to have a great lifestyle. And I think that's what misses everybody is they think, I've got to get to the highest and best school possible. But if you look at the research, it's not the brand of the school anymore. It's really about the skills. And, and one of the things that's most critically important is, you know, right now we just use these academic measures like an SAT or an ACT or a GPA. And what we find is that's, one way to measure skills or talent, but it's a very limited way. So 30, 40%, if you look at the Tennessee ACT, the average is about a 20. So we're telling half of the kids in Tennessee that they're less talented, okay? They're not, these kids making less than a 20, you know, University of Tennessee and all these schools are not busting down their doors to find them, mm -hmm. yet, Every kid has talent, and American industry needs every kid. So I'm far less concerned about how the top 0.1% pursue that lottery-style education at five or six premier schools than how we start to align and uncover all the talent of these kids across America and so that we can line them up with the economy and most efficiently get them skills, whether it's at a technical college, a certificate program, software development school, or a four-year program. Awesome. Mm -hmm. you know, but that's really going to be the trick about how we move forward as a country is just to get uncover these skills because every student has skills. Um, but they're not all measured academically the same way. Mm. And I'll give you an example of that because it's not just we can talk about race, we can talk about income, we can talk about gender, and we'll get into all that. But just two boys in the same family, my brother and I, you know, I'm that kid that if you throw me in a school environment, I'm going to end up, I'm going to be one of the winners. I'm, you know, just math, science, all that stuff comes naturally. My, both of my brother and I went to Georgia public schools, you know, but, it, you know, on a good day for him, he gets a B. Most days, he's a C guy. So when a counselor is looking at him back then, uh, they're looking at him going, man, you're not college material, mm -hmm. okay? And you know, have you ever heard of the movie Sky High? It's about, you know, it was like a Disney movie that no. was about these kids that had superpowers. And they would go to this high school, and they had one of the coaches, and they were either deemed hero or sidekick <laughs> that's sort of how we do it right now is that if you've got awesome academic capabilities hero mm -hmm. you got less than that you got a different skills mm -hmm. you know you're a sidekick and that's really not how it is america industry needs everybody because if you look at what my brother's doing he builds multifamily apartment buildings. Mm. That guy, he's an awesome human, and he can build and repair anything. But he's building 130-unit 
complexes. Yep. And in that environment, I'm no better than a dude with a shovel. Right. I got nothing. Mm -hmm. Whereas certain technology developments and all that, I've got game. Yep. But in his environment, I don't. Yep. And so that one measure called these SAT, ACT, and all that, that's not the only way to look at talent. We got to look at it differently yep. so that we can get these kids lined up and be their best self. So do you think a lot of small business owners or entrepreneurs, like take your brother, for example, are they... Do they go down that kind of that track because they aren't getting the straight A's or is that just how they're wired and they were going to head down that track anyway and the grades just are what they were, but this is what they were heading for anyway? Does that question make sense? Sure. And it depends on the industry. You know, so, for example, the most entrepreneurial group, guys like skill trades, they'll start out how much do you pay for having a plumber come to your house or an electrician? You know, somebody doing that work, they'll start out with one truck doing it by themselves. And sooner or later, they'll have multiple trucks, a bass boat, a lake house, mm -hmm. and even fly around as they're doing construction. So it really depends on the kind of work that you do. Whereas somebody that you know, has a certain designer does certain technology you know, and certain kinds of things that may require certain math or engineering, they may have been great in school. So it's less about the type of business. You know, because, for example, you know, I, I was lucky enough to join a technology startup back in 95 and it, it ultimately became WebMD and MDON here in town and changed healthcare. So I was there when we grew it from 50 people and less than a million to 3,000 people and a billion three in revenues. So it, it's more of the type of work you do mm. and less of what style of company. That's probably more of a personality about how much risk you can absorb and how you like to work and the kind of uh, ambiguity you like to deal with. Okay. I have a, a foot in both wars with this because I was raised in the Mennonite tradition and my wife was raised in the Amish tradition and my wife's parents are still Amish. All the kids have left, but the parents are still Amish. And you may or may not know this, but in the Amish and Mennonite communities, very few go to college. It's becoming a little bit, it's becoming let's say let's let's say less rare it does happen it's still not very common but you know certainly college education is looked at in those circles as well i i think quite frankly it comes down to like not necessary because a lot of those are have their own businesses they're they're you know and they do actually really well and there's a whole reason i think list of reasons why they do well but it because part of the lifestyle but um I do think that there is maybe sometimes an underappreciation for when college does make sense because there's lots of times where it does make really good sense. Um, what would be your thoughts then now on who would just college make sense for or who doesn't it? Or is your recommendation still go through 12 grades and then go to college at least for two years or, or at a community college, just go somewhere for college. Is that your recommendation or I'll say it a little bit differently. I believe 70% of our jobs now require some post-secondary education. And if you look at the earnings outcomes, 
getting some level of post-secondary education really helps you know, lifetime earnings. So I'm a huge fan of post-secondary. Now, what does that really mean when I use the phrase post-secondary and not college? Look, I'm good. If you want to be an electrician, get an apprenticeship at IBEW and be an electrician. Awesome. If you want to go into engineering and you're not quite sure, you don't have the money to go get a four-year engineering, get a two-year, become an engineering technician or a technologist at a TCAT or a technical college somewhere around the country. And then I guarantee you, by the time you get employed for two years, three years, somebody's going to pay for your four-year engineering degree. Mm. If you want to go be an accountant and a CPA, you're going to need to go get an undergraduate degree. You're going to need a four-year degree. So it is really, you know, whether you want to be a MD or you want to be an electrical or electrician or a plumber or a welder. It's really about what do you want to do and what's the most efficient path to get there. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. So it is, but I do believe stopping at the end of high school is going to limit your future. You're going to hear great stories, whether it be Bill you know, Gates or you know, you're looking at a Steve Jobs or Zuckerberg. Take those as the exception. If you look at the data, you really need to be disciplined. Get some kind of post-secondary skill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's going to really decide on what do you want to do and what's the efficient way to get there. Mm-hmm. The, I don't believe in just defaulting to four-year just because it's a four-year. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Now, you said something that was surprising to me. You said you feel like the brand of school matters less now than it did in the 80s. Which is interesting because that documentary would, I would have perceived from that that, wow, the brand of school matters so much more now than it did, say, in the 80s. But you're saying maybe it does for the 1%. Is that what you're saying? But for the other 99%? If you can get into Stanford or Harvard or something, yes. If you want to be an investment banker, yes. Okay. But there's very few careers now where I would say brand of school matters more than the skills you've got. You know, for example, we talked about software engineering. Okay, cool. I don't care whether how that person, whether they were self-taught, whether they you know, got a computer science degree, how they end up being a good software engineer. I want the skills. Okay, so it but. If you're looking for a CPA and all that, whether they went to an Ivy League school, University of Tennessee, University of Georgia, or any particular school to get that degree, doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. So I would say our economy has turned much more toward show your skills and less toward brand, with the minor exception of about 10 schools and that's where you get the silly lottery behavior. I see. But those are completely irrelevant for most people. Okay. okay? So for 99% of the population, it's about skills and the most efficient path. It's not about brand. I see. Interesting. Yeah. And that is good news, I think, for the general population. Like this is the way that it should have maybe been all along or, or maybe... 
at the very least, this is a good direction for the trend to be heading. Absolutely. I think it's great news because now people can smartly pick the most efficient path. Okay, It's not just about highest and best brand and then think about what you're going to go study. That's a silly way to go do it. You see a lot. That's what's causing a lot of these people to drop out is they're starting. They don't know why they're there. They're finding their education irrelevant and they end up falling out. Uh huh. Okay. And we've got to do a better job of helping people become more self-aware at what's their area of giftedness and how to direct their education more effectively. Yes, which is where you science comes in. And but first, I need to touch on this other thing, which is that you're saying trades. The, the, the high-tech manufacturing jobs at by 2030, us needing 2.1 million workers at that, or projecting a 2.1 million dollar 2.1 million worker deficit by 2030 is shocking to me. It's surprising because I thought it was heading the other way. I thought automation and AI and robots and self-driving trucks was going to put all these people out of work. But you're saying all these common welders, there's a high demand for them now, and we're seeing that projected into the future? Sure. Absolutely. And two or three trends. Okay, that are important, but robotics, awesome. They can pick things up. They can move the things. They can do repetitive tasks, but you still need somebody to design. Somebody needs to program the robotics. Somebody needs to actually handle the thought work. And so the pay is going up, but so are the skill requirements. So what you're seeing is less need for somebody just to pick stuff up and move it, move it around in a warehouse, the robotics are taking care of those. So that's why there's the skill deficit, is that you're still seeing high demand for people that can come in and do the work that a robot robot can't. Mm-hmm. And I also think that some of this automation is going to take a little bit longer than we originally thought. I remember being at South by Southwest probably four years ago, four or five years ago-ish. And, I mean, this was several years ago. And the the big talk then was how AI is going to take over um, accounting. Like, we're going we're gonna to not need accountants so much. And that's nowhere near happening, based on my understanding now. The accountants aren't, aren't at risk of losing a job this year or next year or the following. So well, it's just taking some time. But the accounting, I started at a firm called Arthur Anderson in 1985 as a staff accountant. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Arthur went away with Enron. So it was 200,000 people, you know, sort of summarily let go. I had left there uh, probably some 12 years before that. But, you know, just how they do accounting and auditing has changed a lot. We used to have to go to this company site. Everything was on paper records. Now there is no paper. Everybody's doing it electronically. Any kind of manual stuff's either offshore or automated. And so, again, the accountants are a great example. They're doing the thought work, the thought analysis, to because the audit standards are very rigorous now because of Enron, because of all the SEC requirements. But you don't need the bulk you know, staff to go on site to look through a bunch of paper records. Mm-hmm. And so it looks it's trending just like advanced manufacturing. Skills going up, using automated digital tools to do the analysis. But 
it's changed mm -hmm. very much. And we're seeing the same thing with manufacturing. Robotics are taking out the low-level manual jobs, but the higher skill-level jobs to man, you know, do robotic technology and design work and the welding and running the complex equipment are there, and they pay a lot more. Mm -hmm. yeah. Total sense. Now, you were saying you went to Georgia Public Schools, and then you went also to college in Georgia, did you say? I went to University of Georgia. Okay. But you also went to Stanford. So yes. how did you get into that? Because that's not an easy school to get into, and I assume it was just as hard back in the 80s? Hey, not quite that old. It was 93. Okay. And so, <laughs> but close. I actually worked for eight years. And so oh, when wow. we talk about my brother and I, we were very fortunate, and my parents had divorced, and when we, he and I graduated from college, we got sort of zero money. So we're, uh, we, my mom became a real estate agent in the early 70s to supplement income. And you know, so she, uh, we, he and I happened to be at her house in probably you know, somewhere right around the time I was graduating, so 85, 86. And... You know, she was trying to sell a house that was a fixer-upper for a lady that it was just great location, but it was really you know, in a mess and needed a bunch of work. And so uh, the deal fell through with an investor. And so you know, my brother was like, hey, I wish we could buy this thing. And I said, you know, and this is the two different skill sets. I said, we can we can borrow against mom's house. And so of course, uh, he and I borrowed against mom's house and did that. And so while I was working at Arthur Anderson at nights and he was working at a building supply place, we started buying houses and remodeling them. Oh, wow. And so fortunately made enough money over the course of, you know, seven or eight years to take two years off from life and go out to Stanford. Oh, wow. And so Stanford probably because I went to Georgia public schools, spoke full Southern, you know, maybe they gave me a break and thought I was a, you know, a good charity case for them. Yeah, well, I you appreciate know. your humility on that, but I don't think they're letting you into Stanford just because you have a southern accent. <laughs> close. <laughs> it was close. Uh, how that and a decent GMAT. How about okay. That? <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Um, but for you, totally worthwhile, would you say? Yeah. For your career yeah. track going through Stanford, yeah. totally worthwhile. Well, and I also wanted to pivot on my career. So I was a gone to Georgia and moved out of uh, pre-med chemistry, gone into accounting because I had no idea what kind of business I wanted to be in. And I thought that'll give me a basic business knowledge. And as I was working with Arthur Anderson, found technology companies, joined a technology company, sort of loved that environment and the type of business. And so I wanted to expand beyond my CFO roots. And so I obviously you're looking, I wanted to do find a school that had both engineering and the business side because I wanted to move more into product development. So, and mm. so that allowed me to do that. And there were two or three others that I, I looked at, but they all had engineering and product development and with a focus on technology. Okay. So you, how long had Stanford been on your mind before you got serious about it and started to apply and those types of things? Two or three years okay. when I figured out that I didn't want to be the world's greatest CFO. Okay. And then went back. And so, and obviously I was married at the time. We were looking at having children and stuff. So there are more factors. And okay. just then financially, 
able to take two years off. Okay, so, sure. And pay for graduate school and not have to borrow any money. So it was a it was a right time to do it. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, shall we just jump into U science, or maybe could you just give us the high points of how you got into U science? Then sure, fill us in yeah, from so Stanford to when I U came science. came out of Stanford. I had a had been in a you know, healthcare you know, strategy class, and it really looked as you know healthcare was the only industry where someone could you know, serve, provide a service and not know when, if, or how much they're going to get paid. And giving, given my accounting roots and all that, it really struck me. And then just serendipity met a company that wanted to sort of transform healthcare startup company in Atlanta. And so we were looking to move back to the Midwest or Southeast near our families and so moved back and I joined this little company and over the course of 17 years, it grew and we were very fortunate. You know, we merged, acquired a company called WebMD and we became WebMD. We took it public and survived the dot-com crash and then continued to grow and then took it private in 06 as we moved to Nashville and it continued to grow. And so it became MDON, then changed healthcare over time. But uh, we ultimately took it back public on the New York Stock Exchange and sold it to Blackstone Private Equity in 2011. And so I stayed around a little bit of time to help them transition. I was running, my group was about 500 million at the time. And so I helped them transition. And as I was leaving, one of the, a good friend of mine, called me up and said, man, I know this guy that's got a really great idea and just doesn't know yet how to put it into practice. Mm -hmm. And I met Richard Patton and Betsy Wills, and we found a really good product guy named Toby Cunningham. And the four of us researched this idea about how to help people more efficiently move from education into career and do it using real data. And so we all chipped in and started U Science January first of twenty thirteen. Yeah. That long? That that's yeah okay. And so since then, you know, we've uh, we've worked with over a million students, yeah, and or, and I'll say students of any age. You know, our oldest user may have been 85, 89, looking at an encore career. Mm -hmm. Awesome. You know, so uh, that's worked. And we've just recently, uh, last year, early last year, just before COVID struck, we merged with a great company called Precision Exams. Mm -hmm. And so we've now added skill certification. So not only do we help people figure out what should I do in terms of career so they more effectively direct their education? But as they're moving down those paths, we can help them validate their skills and create those certifications and signals into the market to help them more effectively pursue post-secondary or direct into career. Mm. So the initial idea, you said launched, U-Science launched January 1st of 2013? Yes. And the initial idea was people in college two-year degrees, four-year degrees, whatever, let's let's help them direct the course from that point future. Is that accurate? Because it's kind of, it's 
more broad than that now. Yes. You know, it actually, when we looked at whether we should do that, and that was part of a big debate, obviously, in a startup and, and concept stage, you're doing market research, you're doing way more time at a whiteboard or than like, but what we figured out is if we wait until they're in college to show them what they should do, it's too late. They've already okay, sure. burned up a yep. lot of their education. Yep. So we actually looked and said, okay, we've got to move this process forward to when they're starting to make those decisions and help them better utilize their education. So that's when we decided to build what is now the U-Science Discovery products, the aptitude-based guidance. Because if you, it's great to show somebody uh, that's at the end of a second year or third year, hey, you should have been X, a little late. There's a sure. lot of money and time. And then you think about things like the Tennessee Promise, where they get two years of education free. Man, those guys, time is money. If we don't help them more effectively figure out what they're going to do before mm -hmm. they ever enter that program, they're going to run out of time and money. And so that's why we move the process forward. So for right now, we start in middle school because what we find is kids making those first moves from middle school to high school and picking their high school curriculum, that's the beginning of the talent pipeline. That's when they're making their first narrowing decisions. So that's when we lose a lot of our young women and minorities to high-wage, high-demand careers because we've got, for example, yeah, if you take computer programming, only 20% of the computer science majors are women. Yet when we look at middle school and look at the aptitudes of these young women compared to men, they have just as much aptitude for computer science, advanced manufacturing, and so on, as the boys. Oh, wow. And so, but if you look at just their interest, it's all about arts and entertainment, social work, education, life sciences like psychology. And so just asking a kid in their middle school, what do you want to do? is going to be misleading because there's this huge exposure gap. They just haven't ever seen it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'll give my daughter as an example is she also went to university of Georgia, but she was one of the first test rats coming out in, uh, December of 2013. I was trying to get her to go to college, <laughs> you know, apply to college, and actually a very good, she's a very good student. But she's my most spiritual child. And so I just want to help people. And so should I go and focus on nonprofit studies and all that? But we were like, we were like just take you science and let's see what it says. Mm -hmm. And it came back, you know, pediatrician, OB, internist she doesn't have any she's never been exposed to being a doctor we don't have any in the family so when we think about an exposure gap it's not just you know it's it affects everybody mm -hmm. there's just such a limited view yet and so she ended up going to university of georgia studied nutritional science pre-med got her master's in public health and now entering her third year in the medical school at University of Alabama, Birmingham, and she's killing it. But she had never thought about being a doctor. And when you, you know, uh, you're a spiritual guy, when she thinks about God's will for her and how she can best serve, 
it finally dawned on her that being a doctor was the right way to do that. Wow, that is fascinating. So you, your very own daughter, is it fair to say that your very own daughter may not or likely would not be on a track to be in the medical profession if it wasn't for you, science? That's correct. She had no idea. Wow. And how do you look at a kid and just go, you know, I think you'd make a great doctor. Yeah, I really have no idea. I know that she had game and she was very good, a very good student. Okay. And so things like sciences and math and all that came naturally to her. But most families have a very limited perspective on the range of opportunities out there. Mm -hmm. And they really don't know their children and even themselves in those context of those careers. Mm -hmm. So it's both a self-awareness and the limited perspective of a family. And if you think about most of our families, you know, my wife and I, you've got two parents and we could, you know, expose her to these kinds of things, still a limited view. But you think about rural kids, urban kids, poor kids, there's a real myopic view of what the opportunity for these kids are. Yet mm-hmm. these kids have the aptitude, the talent to do the work we need them to do. It's just, we've got to uncover it. And it's yep. that exposure gap that's limiting. Yeah, that is, um, it's one thing that I take care to not ask of my kids too much is this question of what do you want to do or what do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, we talk about it sometimes, but first of all, I try not to say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like that's your identity, you know? Um, but I mean, we'll, we'll sometimes daydream, but the truth is they have no idea at this. They, they really have no idea. And to sort of like, I just don't want to make them feel this pressure. I mean, my oldest is 10. So we have five every two years from 10 down. So 10, eight and six, um, the 10 and eight year olds, you know, those are the ones we were sometimes have, we'll just chat about it or whatever, like dream together about what the future might hold, that type of thing. I want them to sense that I, I have high expectations for them. And by what I mean by that is just whatever God has for them to do or however they can contribute best to society. Like that's what I want for them. Right. And I don't want something to, to get in their way and them not to have, you know, to be able to kind of live out how they should be living out or do the work they really should be doing. Um, but not high expectations is in like, man, I really hope you're a lawyer. And then if you're not, you're disappointing me, certainly. But this idea of like asking the kids, like, what do they want to do? I mean, 10, 12, I mean, they have no idea, but you're saying though, I like this idea about your, 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 um, the daughter you said was spiritually aware or, or, or whatever. Um, the, what's, what's great about this is what you helped you know, because I think we, based on what I know, we are both people of faith and probably believe in the same God. And so if we believe that we are here by design, God created us, and then here we are, well, he already like has, obviously he knows kind of what's going to happen, and life is not a surprise as we go through it to, to God. But if he made us with certain talents or aptitudes or intuitions, strengths, weaknesses, those types of things, what you science is doing, what you science basically helped your daughter to do is sort of discover God's will for her life in a sense. Because, man, if this person is like just so obviously meant to be a doctor, but there's no doctors in the family, and so they don't go down that track, and instead, you know, they're working at the county clerk's office. I mean, that's great, too, if that's your thing. But 
it's like, man, that's what you were kind of, that's the skills you have. And then you right. didn't go down that track because you didn't see it. Right. And so what you science is helping to do is like uncover that that's already in there. That's our first job. It, it, and there's actually two parts to that. Not only do you have to help them uncover what they naturally do well, those natural gifts, and you and they range. Think about my brother and myself. Okay, we just have two same two boys out of the same family, grew up in the same room. Okay, wildly different gifts. Math, science, I'm there. Building, fixing anything, that's my brother Kimball. Mm. Okay, so you can't, it just, it's all your kids. You've got five kids, they're going to be different. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so one of my, you know, just to pick on my other daughter. Yeah, so I've got two girls, two boys. Oh, do you? And, okay. And uh, they're 27, 25, 22, and now 19. Okay. How is that season of life, by the way? Sorry to the sidebar. We'll come back to you're going to pick on it's your awesome. daughter. Is it so awesome? We, you know, but you got to. It's one of those things that after 27 years of child rearing, you know, it's a great transition, and you know, <laughs> it's a, it's one of those. It's a great but, transition. But, but I will tell you, I will tell you, it's it's tougher on my wife because okay. since you know, since. 1995 she's been full-time mom she was computer programmer and all that and you know now she's a life coach helping women you know make those kinds of transitions Mm. because there that's tougher to go from full-time mom to okay now i've got to find meaning and purpose outside of my kids yeah my family and so that's much different than I'll call it Philip, who's you know been running much of the same game, will continue to run, and you know focus. Yes, you parent differently. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, Adele and I get more time to focus on each other, but the big change is for her, not for mm-hmm. me. So I don't want to overstate yeah. my change versus it's a bigger lift for her. She's doing great at it, but she's having to be very deliberate. On uh-huh. how to change okay, that. that makes total sense. For yeah. whatever reason, I don't know why this is, but for years now, I've sort of dreamed about probably like, I don't know, call it five to six years younger than what you were guys. Some, something about like having the youngest is mid-teens and then the oldest is mid-twenties and maybe one or two is married and one or two is coming around with a boyfriend or girlfriend and maybe there's a single one, something like... And then Thanksgiving. I don't know why I have this mental picture, but like Thanksgiving when the family's at that stage just seems... Really awesome. But yeah. you know what? It's our family's great now. I'm sure there's just like there's graces for every every season. Well, and that's just it. Uh probably the one perspective I would share with everybody is I don't care whether you're you're in that hospital room and having a child and you're going through that and or you're trying to change a diaper for the first time and sweat's running down both sides of your face and you <laughs> haven't slept in twenty four hours. You know, all the way up through running around going, I hope they learn to walk. And you figure out once they do, they're everywhere. And yeah. then all the way up through schools. And on. it's great. Every season, as you said, every stage is awesome. Yeah. And you and so just enjoy the whole path through. Yeah. And the stage we're at where, yes, the kids still need support, not financially, fortunately. You know, 
and but they're going to call home with real interesting questions and ways to just say, hey, what do you think? And the good thing is the older they get, probably the smarter we get. Sure. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so it, I would say it's one of those things to enjoy. And yep. I want to circle back to something you said about not asking your kids, what do you want to do? It's a fair question, but you have to also understand that they're going to answer it from a really ignorant perspective. They've only seen what you do. And as a matter of fact, I worked at MDON and WebMD, and my kids had no idea what dad does other than go to meetings, talk on the phone, seems to be stressed sometimes. And <laughs> actually, a lot of times. And, and then, you know, I had to sort of dumb it down and say, well, what does dad do? Uh, I help doctors get paid. That's all they knew. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Because if you think about what a limited view versus if you go back 40, 50 years and it was more of a rural lifestyle or you lived in a manufacturing community, people knew what work was. They saw work. Okay. Now our kids don't see what we do. And so it's made it even tougher to answer that question of, oh, sure. What? do you want to do? Yeah. So when my daughter was about to head off, my oldest daughter headed off to university of Richmond. And so it was, and we learned a lot as you work for kids through post-secondary and college, but she had chosen it. And I asked her the basic question, honey, what do you want to do? And now she's old enough to give me that incredibly honest answer. Dad, I have no idea. And, and so she was really in her second year of college before we had U Science really developed. And so gave it to her because she called home. And she goes, she's up at the University of Richmond. And she calls home, and it's a, it's a great school, good liberal arts program kind of thing. But she calls home with her uh, winter schedule or second semester schedule probably in November of her sophomore year. And my wife was smart enough to go, honey, why don't you walk through your schedule with your dad? Because <laughs> right? here I'm years into you science. And she, she gives me this beautiful list of intellectual fodder. I'm going to take Civil War history, Russian literature, and all that. And I'm like, wow. All right, Logan, let me tell you what's going to happen. I said, you're going to call home in, oh, let's say five months from now. And you're going to go, Mom, Dad, I want to go overseas and study for a semester. And we're going to say, great. And I'm going to ask you exactly one question. Are you going to graduate on time? And you're going to go, I don't know. But you're going to run around campus for a week. And then you're going to call me and go, no. And then I'm going to respond, no. And you're going to have two very disappointed people on the phone. I said, you, why don't you meet me halfway? Let's figure out what your major is. Because the key to getting out of a four-year college on time is you've got to unlock your major classes your sophomore year spring semester. If you mm -hmm. don't, you don't graduate on time and you get out of rhythm. And so sure enough, I looked at her U-Science results, and I had a split screen, her U-Science results on one and the Richmond course catalog on the other half of the screen. And 
you know, she's my most earthy child. So she's the one that if you give her an interest survey, it's going to say you should be a plumber, a welder, sheet metal worker, all that, because she just, she's really into environmental and all that. But she's got the same analytic horsepower as my other daughter. And so when you take the intersection of those aptitudes and those interests, you get things like you know, geographer, geographic information specialist, and all that. I'd never heard of any of these careers. Mm. But sure enough, they have a bunch of course offerings. And so what she does now is she is a geographic information specialist for an environmental consulting firm. And she helps companies actually do permitting for bridges, water infrastructure, and all that up in Cincinnati. And so, again, it's just an example of aptitudes and interest combined. Hmm. And, yes, she did go overseas. She actually went to Tanzania and studied land tenure and how it moved from tribes to whatever, but she did graduate on time. Okay. And I did get to go over and uh, – I Kilimanjaro with her. Oh, that's very cool. So not so your second daughter, same thing. You science changed the trajectory of her life. Yes. Right? That was I my mean, oldest daughter. She just happened to be ahead of when we had you science developed. So she went to University of Richmond sort of with the I don't know. Yeah. We caught her sophomore year. My second daughter, Ansley, we got her her before she applied. And so okay. she went straight through. Wow. Those are in I mean, those are incredible stories. Yeah. So what age? Um, first of all, I had a question. Okay, so when you started January 2013, you were at that point, you were focused on high school kids, right? You weren't doing middle school at that point. Well, for two reasons. And the most practical reason is that's where the technology was. So we work with a great group at the Ball Foundation out of Glen Ellen, Illinois, and license their aptitude measures. They've been studying aptitudes for 40 years and just a great group of folks. They're now investors all that. And what nobody had ever normed or developed the aptitude measures for middle school. So the earliest we could really give them are age 15 or 16. Okay, that's when they were normed for. And if you think about the way, the state of what aptitudes were, we actually had to solve for four things to get them to actually work in this environment. One, time. You know, because you could do, when we looked at the best career guidance out there, you could go to Johnson O'Connor in Atlanta and spend two days and seven, eight hundred bucks. Now it's maybe, I don't know what it costs, but, and get exactly what you science now delivers awesome they're a great group they do you know but we had to solve for time because we needed to do it in less than two hours second money we need to figure out how to deliver it to a consumer for 29 bucks and to educational systems for less than 10 bucks a student you know third knowledge johnson o'connor is gonna you don't need a master's degree you know, you're not going to have a master's degree or somebody with a PhD to go through the results with you. So we had to create the content so that it could be self-driven and a personal experience, but make it incredibly affirmative. So you're not going to see scores at all because kids are taught to focus in school about what they don't do well and bring everything up to a minimum standard. Mm -hmm. Whereas in life, 
Who cares what you don't do well? Let somebody else do that. <laughs> Focus totally on agree. your aces. Totally and agree. So everything we do is about helping somebody uncover their aces. Okay. And then access was our fourth criteria. And we needed to, to deliver everything on the web so that anybody could get to it. I didn't care where they were and at what time. And so we had to solve for those variables. And then so we did not get our middle school version done until we did a nationwide norming and everything uh, about 2018. But now we work with almost a thousand middle schools across the country uh, between our two product lines, our certifications and our aptitude based guidance. We work with almost 4,000 high schools. Wow. Country. So Williamson County, Rutherford County, some uh, Nashville public schools and others around Tennessee. So the, so I have a fifth grader. Would you suggest he take it or wait? Wait. Okay. And here's why. It's really, so first of all, it has to be done because somebody needs it. Okay. So until somebody's got a decision to make, look, it's interesting, but so really when that student is starting to think, all right, I've got to pick my high school curriculum. So seventh and eighth grade, that's what we designed the middle school version for, is to help them make good choices of high school curriculum. It's a little less precise. It's going to talk about career clusters, and they can look at individual careers, you know, but and it's a bit shorter, the, so it takes about 50 minutes, whereas the high school version takes about 80. Mm. And, you know, but the high school version is designed to be career-specific and stuff and help, you know, young people and even adult learners coming back to school, all that, don't care what age, they're going to be looking at how do I make decisions at a career-specific level. Mm. But so really what you're doing with your kids, you want them to read. You want them to have friends and play and learn social skills and just be enthusiastic about education and life. Don't worry about what they're going to do yet. But do you? But over time, continue those dialogues. Okay, it doesn't have to be overly specific, but you want them to be engaged in school and enthusiastic, and then that way you're going to set them up for success. But I wouldn't overstress about because you're not going to tailor their education in the fifth grade. And say, mm -hmm. ah, that's right. You know, those decisions really don't start to happen where you're tailoring education until they're transitioning into high school. Yeah, that makes so, total sense. You know, reading to a child helping them develop social skills with friends, helping them be enthusiastic about school, helping them understand and become self-aware and, uh, as you say, understand the expectations that they need to try. Yeah, makes total sense. And I think the <clears throat> there's a principle behind that, which is sometimes it's like, well, what with any decision, whatever it is, there's such a thing as procrastinating and waiting to make a decision, but I always like to think of, well, do we have to make this decision now? Like summer school was one of those examples. You know, Williamson County, or I'm sorry, Davidson County schools shut down. It's the whole COVID mess. So now they're offering like three or four weeks of summer school. Well, this was like a month ago we were having this discussion. Should we send our kids to summer school or not? Well, we don't have to decide now. We can wait a little bit and see where they're at a month or two and then decide. Is this what you're saying? Because right now if I'd have my fifth grade, fifth grader take the test, let's be honest, just because I'm curious. I'm curious, like, what's he going to do? And now we're setting an expectation in me that it, there's no reason for that. So, yeah, I uh, point, point taken there. And there's a, a second reason, too, is they're still developing. 
So it's very hard to measure even aptitudes. We haven't, we've normed these uh, game-like exercises for numerical reasoning, inductive reasoning, sequential reasoning, and so on. And we've normed these with thousands of middle schoolers, seventh and eighth grade. We're very careful to use those things that are sort of stable at that point. But if you go earlier, it's very hard to tell because there's such variation in the kids and how they're mm-hmm. doing it. So I'm going to tell you, you know, we're, we're, I think that's beyond where the science is right now. Mm. And so we don't go there. And there's no decisions to make. So yeah. as much as a parent's going, oh, sure, when that baby is still in the womb, a parent's going to go start thinking, I wonder what this kid's going to you know, you want them to think, what are they going to be? You want them to be an awesome human. Mm-hmm. Okay. What are they going to do? They'll figure it out. Yeah. You know? And because what you want to do is make sure that you don't, if all these kids have gifts. And so the kid that is a C student has gifts. Find out what they are. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing I would do is don't use the same yardstick to measure the person that's gifted in the classroom and the person that may not be and measure them the same. They have gifts, expand the view because otherwise you're going to view somebody as lesser talent versus somebody else. And that's not true. Different talent, not lesser. And by the way, real quick, what are your thoughts on schooling for elementary middle and high school is good public schools okay or is it just you know if if there's any way you can you know put together 20 or 25 thousand dollars per year per child for a really good private school that's absolutely what you should be doing what are your thoughts on that that's a parent's decision you know, all of, I, my wife and I've been through public schools all four of our kids went through public schools it's so far it's worked for the Harden family, but that was our choice. If somebody really believes in private schools, and, and again, sometimes kids have particular needs and learn in a different environment that may not be available in a certain public school. Cool. Again, that kind of style of education is sort of like the difference between, ah, do I want to send them to a Christian school or do I want to send them to that? It's, look. Again, those are style choices. Mm-hmm. Those are, you know, for your parents and the kids. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. By the way, do you have a hard stop we should watch out for? It's 315. Uh, How much time do you have? 330. I need to get on a call. Okay. I can jump off the call at about 4. And okay. Then That's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get you wrapped up by 330. Um, okay. So, U-Science. It is, it's I mean, I did it two hour, an hour and a half before you got here, and I wish I ran out of time, so I only got like one module done. 29 bucks, 75 minutes, and I get what we're talking about. I get the right. results of what we're talking about. Kids, $10. It, it, it's even in you, school. Most of the schools, you know, we, what we do with our schools, it's not even $10 per student. You know, most of the time, it's a, couple thousand dollars per school and it's all the students and the students get and the 
students get a 10-year license. So they don't have, the same student doesn't have to do it every year because, you know, one time they may be looking at careers, the next time they may look at it dual enrollment opportunities and they may be looking at colleges. And so we give these kids a 10-year license for their use science results so that they can have them with them until they're really into their first career job. Wow. Okay. So that to me, you know, I paid $29. And what, by the way, the, the checkout process was scary, easy, and quick. It was a very easy way to spend $29. So good job on the user experience. But it seems like not that much money to alter someone's life. So you've looked at kind of like supply and demand where the price point should be. I mean, for this thing to like change the course of someone's life, you could probably be charging more. You just looked at the math and this is where it needed to sure. be. Sure. Well, there's both mission and math. Okay. And so one, we truly believe that the, we have to help students of any age figure out what they should do so they can better direct their education. And when it comes to spending money online, if we charged, we, at first we charged a lot. You know, so we were charged 10 times the 29 bucks. And what I found is, yes, we were still getting buyers, but the buyers came from a very specific demographic where the kids were going to go to college anyway. Mm. They were just trying to optimize college, and they had a limited financial risk. So to appeal to a much larger market, we cut the price point by 90%. So that I don't care whether you're going to end up going to a technical college, you can't afford it. It's one of those things we wanted to make it so you couldn't afford not to do it. Mm, I see. Yeah. And the um, when, you, when you say the mission and you're a person of faith, is this did that have a direct impact as you think about the mission of you science, did your faith have a direct impact on this or this is something you were going to do anyway? And just like your faith probably affects everything that you do. My faith had a very direct impact and mm. why you, know, because when we sold the company to Blackstone, there's a decision about there's opportunities to just go. And I'll just say, be pure capitalistic, and you know, with a track record and just double down, make money again. There's also a different path that says, okay, you've been given an opportunity where I don't have to worry about a paycheck every week so that you can go fully at risk and invest in solving a material problem. And so that is a bit more of a mission and faith-based mm. decision than mm -hmm. saying, I just need more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sense. at the same yeah. time, we're going to try to return money to our shareholders. So I don't want to say that, you know, it doesn't matter because yep. I've been, a, you, we've been very fortunate to have really good investors jump on board with us. And yes, they deserve a return, but we're also going to solve a really important problem. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, can you talk to the, the magic or the science behind you science? It sounds like you, you uh, you white labeled or licensed some sure. test or aptitudes of some kind from this other group. Yes, that already existed. And so the notion of aptitudes has been out there since the twenties when uh, Johnson O'Connor actually developed them while at GE. And there's probably fifty different aptitudes that somebody can have. 
What we figured out in working with Ball Foundation is what are the most important general ones for making these kind of career choice and which are the ones that you, we can actually do in an online environment because we can't test things like grip strength and different things like that. You know, so there and we, it's hard to test audio cap audio capabilities in terms of tonal capabilities. So we had to limit it to those that we thought were the most relevant and had the broadest reach across careers. Second, we engaged a wonderful guy named Rich, Dr. Rich Feller to help teach a bunch of technology people like myself and Toby and others how to do career guidance so that he taught us, says, hey, these kids aren't going to have the language of career. They're not going to use it. They're not going to know what aptitudes are. You're going to have to guide them through this. And you got, need to be affirmative because it's not good enough to just say, hey, you know, you could do that career or here's a career. You, you've got to actually have them believe that they can do it. Mm. So you've got to increase confidence, not just awareness. And then third, we worked with some really great psychometricians, Humro and others, you know, uh, some great firms and some talented people inside the company as well to create a very proprietary algorithm on how to match these aptitude measures to careers. So there were really three aspects, three or four aspects. Number one, just picking the right aptitudes and using, you know, psychometrically valid measures. Okay. Number two, creating a user experience that actually helps people do this in a self-service modality. And then number three, the algorithms to recommend to careers. Mm -hmm. And then something that's been incredibly power for our, powerful for our education clients is we've created uh, academic advising tools to help them get the kids into the right CTE programs, post-secondary programs, and all that. So it's not just good enough for just saying, I hope little Billy gets something out of it. You've actually got to give the educators really cool tools to get them into the right pathways so that because these educational entities these districts and states have done a beautiful job creating lots of very robust educational pathways but you got to get the right kids into the right pathways and help these kids make those decisions. And so we've created some really neat tools to help them do that. Mm. And I was curious about this because you're, you're also offering some options or maybe recommending some career paths, right? And, but so, so to do that, you not only have to have a good idea of what that person is good at and some of their strengths and things like that, but you also need to know like, what is out there that's good and that changes yes. how do you how do you keep up with that that piece of it well that's one of the things that the good thing is the federal government actually spent a couple billion dollars and helped us out on that is they've developed uh, the onet database and Bureau of Labor Statistics, so that they actually do 10-year forecasts of what careers are growing, what are not growing, and all that. Oh, wow. So we that. build that data in there, and we refresh it so that we're trying to give our users the best up-to-date knowledge about where careers are headed and not headed. Okay. And so the other thing that we do is we don't just show them, here's the answer. We give them all 500 careers. But we give it to them in a neat sort based on, you know, fit 
So for their highest fit down to weakest fit, and we do it based on interest, based on aptitude, and based on a combined algorithm. Mm. And then they can drill down on any career. I so see. it's really as much to really help them understand who they are and where they can find their best fit in the economy. I see. Yeah. Um, I want to get in a couple of freebie questions, if, uh, and we'll make sure to still wrap this up. But anything else you want to touch on at U-Science? So here's, uh, here's what I'm curious. I mean, you have a pretty accomplished career and you're still going. Um, what are, do you think, some of the core, most foundational business or leadership principles that you consciously or subconsciously acted on that were instrumental or maybe caused you to have the career that you're having? I think for me, both when I look back at WebMD and related companies, and I'll look at youth science. What was important for me is to really focus on solving a problem. And so whether it be at WebMD, wow, healthcare is the only industry where someone can provide a service and not know when, if, or how much they're going to get paid, mm-hmm. or wow, the outcomes for how you know, students transition from education to career are dismal. I'm focused on that. So one of my keys was always focus on the problem because the how-to, what products, what organization, all those things change. But as long as you focused on the problem mm-hmm. and when it became just a focus on the money, whatever, it was time for me to leave. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably the number one. And the second is really try to if be in an environment that you're comfortable being in. You know, so if you're, you know, for me, you know, I needed a high change, ambiguous more entrepreneurial environments and I need them to have certain character attributes, those you got to pick your environments. Mm. And then finally, just be in sync with your family. Okay. And so whatever you do, uh, I made a commitment to myself that whether I'm, you know, that you can, my dad and I had this debate, you know, some probably 30 years ago is he didn't believe that you could be successful in business and in family. Mm. And I truly believed you could. And I'm so far so good. Mm-hmm. What do you mean, though, to, to have your, your work be congruent with your family? Like, what does that mean? Well, you're going to, regardless, you know, Adele and I moved out to Stanford. So child number one was born in California. Child number two was born in Atlanta when I moved to the startup. We bought a subsidiary of United Healthcare, so we moved up to Minnesota. Child number three is born in Minnesota. Child moved, uh, acquired a company down here and moved to Nashville. Great. Child number four in Tennessee. So I was a wandering <laughs> web worker. But Adele and I had agreed that we're going to find wherever we're going to be by the time our oldest daughter started first grade. And we made it by about three mm. weeks. Oh, okay. So that whatever you're doing, how much change your family, your wife, your husband can take, whatever that may be, how much risk they can take in terms of salary, make sure that communication's strong. Oh, okay. And so when I say be in sync, you know, it's there's a lot of communications there as you're moving through this. Mm-hmm. So. 
Got it. Love it. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for your time. Thanks for being on. I've really enjoyed this. Um, we'll wrap it up. Anything you want to leave with the listeners? I suspect a lot of the listeners are highly interested in, well, it's the youth science stuff. It's it's how what their kids should do. And if they have kids going to college or in high school or middle school, and, and a lot of parents listen to this. So I think they're highly interested in in that aspect, or maybe they're just in business. Um, a lot of our people are in, in business, and, and a lot, some of them are people of faith, too. So, well, I mean, we talked a little bit about our demographic, but what would you want to leave with them if you had one thing to leave with them? My number one is everyone has talent. So there's not just one way to measure it. So they may not be an academic you know, up on stage, but they have talent. Uncover it find joy in it and help them find joy in it. And ultimately they'll be incredibly successful. Love it. Philip Harden. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank really you for having it. me. Yeah, this was great. Thank you.